from the studio of KPSU Portland, and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. I think that the public inquest was kind of a monumental moment for the black community, you know, even though it did not turn out the way that they wanted it to, it was still further legal action and kind of a step in the right direction of the city acknowledging these grievances. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Ryan Wisnor. And I'm Joshua Justice. Today, we talk about the killing of Ricky Johnson by the Portland Police Department. Ricky Johnson died after being shot by Portland Police Bureau patrolman Kenneth Sanford, who was disguised as a cab driver. We demand to know how an officer could feel his life is being threatened by someone who is obviously running away. Was it necessary to shoot Ricky in the head? Why not shoot to maim instead of to kill? Obviously, the officer was close enough to be able to get a clear shot. If the police were completely aware of the robbery attempt the Young Brothers were allegedly planning, why didn't they simply surround the house and order all inside to come out? Where could they have gone? If they had come out shooting, we could understand retaliation by the police, but to have apparently set them up so that the situation was allowed to easily get out of hand and have a young life wasted was unnecessary on the part of the police. The police killing of Portland teenager Ricky Johnson sparked a community movement demanding accountability from City Hall and the police department. In this episode, we examine how the black community organized for justice, how their movement was covered by the local media, and how the city officials responded to their demands. During the past couple years, Black Lives Matter, Hands Up United, and numerous local organizations have raised the national awareness of the disproportionate number of black men, women, and even children killed by the police in the United States. Ricky Johnson's death in 1975 proved a pivotal pivotal moment in Portland's black community, whose effects can still be felt in these modern movements. Joining us today is Katherine Nelson, a historian and second-year graduate student of history at Portland State University. Katie also holds a BA in history and family and human services from the University of Oregon. Prior to pursuing her master's, she worked as a family adoption caseworker for children in foster care. Katie's academic focus is on public history and 20th century American history. She's currently at work on her thesis, which examines how communities in Portland responded to the 1975 killing of Ricky Johnson, an African American high school student. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. So tell us how you got started on this thesis project. When I initially entered into the master's program at Portland State University, I was really interested in looking through the Rutherford family collection over at the Portland State University Special Collections. One day I was just thumbing through uh, the archive material and I found a zine that was written about the Ricky Johnson killing and it was called On the Murder of Ricky Johnson and it detailed the community's response and the outrage that many of the black members of the community felt towards this injustice. Mm-hmm. And the killing of Ricky Johnson was done by the Portland police in 1975, as we heard in the opening clip, um, which was an excerpt from uh, the Oregon Historical Society in their collection. But taking a little bit of a step backwards, the, so Portland was incorporated in 1851. What was the nature of policing at that time? 
Shortly after the city was incorporated, the state legislature in Salem agreed that Portland needed some kind of police entity, so a city marshal was elected. On average, these first city marshals lasted only about 11 months, so it was evident by the quick turnover that Portland needed a more stabilized and legitimized policing unit. The state legislature officially assembled a three-person police commission through the Metropolitan Police Bill in 1871. Therefore, the legislature in Salem directly oversaw the Portland Police Commission. The early 20th century saw a lot of growth within the Portland Police Bureau, often based on specific demands within the city as the city itself grew. So how did the early privatized policing initiatives influence the structure and purpose of civic policing that would follow? This is a really interesting topic as there's not a lot of published material about it. Um, One day when I was doing research at Oregon Historical Society, I found a really interesting dissertation by Charles Tracy Abbott. Uh, It's called The History of the Portland Police, 1811 to 1900. He argues that private enterprises in Oregon, such as John Jacob Astor's fur enterprise in Astoria, created the first policing entity in Oregon and that these almost ad hoc police agencies encourage the protection of privatized communities and enterprises opposed to community um, well-being. And I think this is a really interesting piece to look at, even though it's a dissertation. It was written in 1976, and I think that is indicative of the time and the community's relationship with the police. You know, people were wanting answers as to why the police were behaving the way that they were. Today, the Portland Police Association, which is the the labor organization for the officers, is a powerful political player in the city. I wanted to ask you what the history of the PPA is and how did they become so influential in the city government? The Portland Police Association formed after World War II in response to what many officers felt was unfair treatment by then-Police Chief Harry Niles. Police Chief Harry Niles was largely responsible for the professionalization of the Portland Police Bureau. He installed a police science school, the first police training school, and the records division in Portland. He also helped Santa Barbara establish their own police force and traveled to Washington, D.C. to install a record system for the Federal Prohibition Enforcement Division. However, some Portland officers saw Niles as a tyrant who continued to fire many of Portland's veteran police officers in order to achieve what many believed to be a lofty ideal of police professionalism. What initially sparked outrage from the officer community was the installation of the Park Patrol Ordinance, which required officers to undergo a physical examination, whereupon the unhealthiest 100 were assigned to foot patrol throughout city parks. This foot patrol lasted from 6 p.m. until 6 a.m. for six days straight. Their salaries were also reduced. This ordinance was installed to help weed out officers who were unfit for particular police work. After Pearl Harbor, Portland became one of the biggest ship manufacturers in the country. The city saw a huge increase in city population, primarily due to all the jobs available in the shipyards. This influx demanded more from the Portland police officers, as officers were required to work every day with no overtime compensation and at least two 12-hour shifts per week. Officers recognized their wartime duties, but felt their efforts were being abused. Additionally, shipyard workers were protected by labor unions and getting paid twice as much as the experienced police officer. By World War II, the United States didn't have a single police union. After the deadly strike of Boston police in 1919, the American Federation of Labor disbanded all its police union charters. This didn't deter Portland police partners John D. Hayes and Frank Springer from starting the first police union in the United States. They began meeting with union representatives and recruiting police union members, despite the chief's threats of immediate discharge. 
Hazen Spring Springer continued to un, uh, recruit underground behind his back. The first meeting of the Portland Police Association was held on April 14, 1942, and saw over 70% of the Portland Police Bureau in attendance. The PPA is the first un police union in the United States. The first president, Anno Meaners, helped organize unions in Salem, Spokane, Vancouver, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. It has always been a highly organized, intelligent, vocal, tight, and loyal group, and I believe that's why it continues to see success to this day. So how would you describe the historical relationship between Portland's African-American community and the Portland police? I would say that it ha is historically very tumultuous. Um, you know, in the 1960s and even the 1950s, the police were heavily surveying the black community, and um, the black community throughout Oregon's history has really felt targeted by the Portland police. Moving into the, the incident that you are peering into to for your thesis, the, the, the death of Ricky Johnson, what resources, you, you mentioned a little bit in the beginning, the Charlotte Rutherford collection, or the Rutherford collection of the PSU Special Collections. What, have you used any other archives, or what are the primary resources that you have found most helpful so far in your thesis? I have used the Portland City Archives. They are very helpful. They have the Metropolitan Community Relations Committee um, files in there, and they also have officer personnel files. And so that's been really interesting to see how the community has responded as well as how officers in the police force responded. I've also largely used the Oregonian to see how it was reported on to the larger public. And one area that I am going to focus more on is Oregon Historical Society has the rap sheet, which is the Portland Police Association's monthly newsletter. And they also have the Portland Observer, which is a long-running Portland black newspaper. So I plan very soon to get in there and examine each of these um, different perspectives. Tell us, what do we know happened on the night of March 14, 1975, the night that Ricky was shot and killed? So on March 14, 1975, Ricky Charles Johnson and a friend, Homer Zachary, attempted to rob a radio cab driver at an abandoned house on North Ganton Bean Drive. The two boys ordered Chinese food to be delivered to the house via a radio cab driver, which was a normal service back then. Zachary and Johnson called radio cab and driver Martin Zamzow was assigned. However, two nights prior, Martin Zamzow Zamzow delivered food to the same abandoned house on North Ganton Bean Avenue and was robbed by two youth, one with a baseball bat and one with a gun. They took $14 from him. Zamzow decided to avoid a second robbery and instead called the Portland police. The police relayed the situation between units and Officer Kenneth Stanford agreed to travel to North Ganton Bean. Sanford felt he was best suited for the job as he was familiar with the community, had a successful career of apprehending suspects while working with the burglary division, and he had also been in the house before. The PPB decided to send Sanford in on a sting operation where he would be dressed as a radio cab driver, driving a radio cab, and carrying a gun in a Chinese to-go box. After he entered the home, Johnson confronted Sanford with a gun and said, give me all your money or I'll blow your head off. Sanford revealed his own firearm and de demanded Johnson forfeit his weapon. This is where information kind of gets muddled and stories diverge. Officer Sanford claimed Johnson turned and crouched to the ground, which made Sanford think he was potentially grabbing another weapon. The other popular belief is simply that Ricky turned to run. Sanford fired two shots, one lodged in the wall, and the second hit Ricky Johnson in the back of the head. 
Homer Zachary ran out the back door, and Sanford fired several shots at him out in the open until he was eventually stopped, surrendered, and arrested. So you mentioned the diverging accounts. Uh, where were the the police accounts account, uh, accountable from? Was it just the one officer? And as far as the eyewitness accounts, was it just Zachary, or was it those two were the only surviving witnesses of this incident, or were there others in the neighborhood? From what I can track down, those are the two um, perspectives, uh, and I actually have not been able to track down Sanford's official statement. Um, what I have found has been released through press releases from Chief Baker to the Oregonian, and that's how this is largely highlighted. Um, once the situation was investigated, there were several inconsistencies that arose that made people wonder or question exactly what he was doing. What were some of those inconsistencies um that you found in that report? Well, first of all, I think it's important to mention as background that Ricky Johnson was the fourth black male to be shot and killed by Portland police within a five-month period. He was the youngest victim at 17. There was also Joseph Hopkins at 28, Kenneth Allen at 27, and Charles Menefee at 26. The severity between each case varies. Hopkins was found running down Southwest Fifth Avenue with a gun in his hand after he shot at his neighbor's house. Allen was shot several times by undercover police officers in the back back of a police car, and Menefee was shot and killed after a 20-mile chase. Although Johnson's actions were against the law in an obvious attempt at armed robbery, it was really disturbing to the public that the two boys stole a petty amount of just $14 two nights prior. Many members of the community believed the reaction by the Portland police was too harsh, the amount of money stolen did not match the force administered, and there were several other discrepancies and inconsistencies associated with the case. These inconsistencies caused Johnson's death to gain legal action, additional activism, and to be widely publicized within the greater Portland community. Um, The first and kind of most obvious discrepancy is what exactly Johnson was preparing to do when he turned his back on Officer Sanford. Sanford claimed to think that he was preparing to grab another weapon and shoot whereas members of the community, both black and white, strongly felt that Johnson was unjustly shot in the back of the head while he was trying to run to safety out the back door. This is supported by the overall investigation of the crime scene. Johnson's gun was found near Officer Sanford in the living room, whereas his body was found over 10 feet away in the dining room. It is widely believed that Johnson dropped his weapon and turned to run out the back door. Therefore, many members of the Portland community believe that Sanford shot an unarmed youth in the back of the head as he was trying to flee. Secondly, many Portland citizens believe the Portland Police Bureau handed the case inappropriately and against protocol. The Portland Police claimed that they discussed several options as to how to handle the situation. Citizens wondered why, if this was so heavily discussed, they would send an officer in alone. Additionally, the police lied and said that the special task force was unavailable, when in reality they just did not contact them. One command officer interviewed by the Oregonians said it well. He believed it was unreasonable to expect one police officer to control an armed robbery against two offenders. The interviewed officer explained that usually the officer would be electronically bugged and supported by several other officers. Lastly, Ricky's gun was unloaded and also missing a clip, which therefore rendered the gun completely useless. However, Officer Sanford was wearing a full body armor. Although Officer Sanford had no way of knowing Johnson's gun was unloaded, the community believed it to be tragically ironic and frustrating that while Johnson's gun was incapacitated, Officer Sanford was completely protected. In light of those inconsistencies and, you know, the string of killings by the police, how did the the community respond to Ricky's death? 
The Portland community's response to these circumstances and to the death of Ricky Johnson vary. Uh, a lot of people, both black and white, were really mad and thought that this was just abhorrent. You know, um, on the other hand, no one believed Johnson necessarily deserved the outcome of the situation, but many Portland community members stood with Officer Sanford and believed the Portland police handled the situation appropriately. Um, members of the black community were especially concerned with the consistent violence against African Americans by the Portland police. Days after the killing, members of the Black Student Union at Portland State University decided to take action and voice their unrest. For, memory, for many members of the Black Student Union, this was a very personal matter. Kenneth Allen's sister, Rosemarie Allen, was a member of the Black Student Union, as was Ricky Johnson's sister-in-law, Sandra McFerrin. There was a lot of anger that arose from the community members, and many demanded answers as to exactly what happened in the night of March 14th, and more importantly, why it happened. Which brings me to the media and how that's a major component of what you're looking at, um, as you mentioned, is how the media covered the case of Ricky Johnson. Earlier, it's you no, know, you mentioned the four killings in the five months, but even before that, um, in 1969, the 14 black citizens filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of 20,000 black Portlanders, uh, which was ended up being settled. But there was definitely the awareness, the tension between uh, the black community and the police regarding how the police department was policing. So how did the media cover this case with, uh, in regards to Ricky and how did it compare to previous reporting? Can you speak a little bit to the Oregonian, or uh, which media outlet were you examining primarily? I'm looking primarily at the Oregonian as of now. I do plan on looking at more, but what's interesting about the Oregonian is if you look, especially at just the three previous deaths four months prior, they are really not covered at all, whereas Ricky's death is pretty heavily covered by the Oregonian. The three previous deaths were all headlined inadvertently depict the men killed as dangerous criminals. Kenneth Allen's death was headlined, Uncover Police Kill Suspect, and Charles Menefee's headline was, 12 shots fired in gun battle that killed man. Joseph Hopkins' death was not even mentioned in the Oregonian. Both Allen and Menefee's stories use pictures of them that resemble mugshots and show the men unsmiling. Based on the vocabulary, this further criminalizes the men and puts all the blame on the victim. Unlike these other instances, Johnson's case was heavily covered over 30 times just within the first six months of the case. Johnson's death was first headlined, Officer Plays Cabbie, Kills Youth, and Hold Up Try, thus putting the action and perpetration of the incident on Kenneth Sanford. Whereas in the three previous killings, the men were re referenced as suspects, Johnson is referred to as a victim throughout coverage and is even referred to as Young Ricky from time to time. I don't think the Oregonian necessarily supported the black community outright, but by covering the story, they were inadvertently supporting the demand for a larger discussion. Mm -hmm. In response to the killing, two, the black, or, as you mentioned, the PSU Black Student Union and the Albina Ministry Alliance were among the, those organizations at the forefront demanding justice uh, on behalf of Ricky Johnson, as well as the other three men that were killed in the months earlier. But what happened after Ricky's death was that new organizations started to be formed, two of them being the Black Justice Committee and also the Black Coalition. Can you tell us more about uh, the people that were involved with these organizations and what they were, um, what their role at this time was? So the story goes that the founder of the Portland Black Panthers, Kent Ford, asked members of the Black Student Union how they were going to respond to Ricky Johnson's death. He encouraged them to mobilize a militant effort that would demand action from the city. This group eventually became the Black Justice Committee. 
With Kent Ford as the inspiration, the Black Justice Committee provided the community with a militant and organized group. However, the Black Justice Committee was also open to cooperative communication with city officials. They were hugely responsible for bringing awareness to the public inquest and often discussed their grievances with Police Chief Baker and Mayor Neil Goldschmidt. The Black Justice Committee's constitution states, The purpose of the Black Justice Committee will be to respond to the expressed needs of the Portland black community. The community's objectives include establishing a base for community development in the Albina black community, to act as a liaison between black members of the community and political leaders, initiating black participation in community meetings, educating black citizens on their rights, and to establish a broad base of support with other like-minded groups. Members of Portland State University's Black Student Union and members of the broader black community joined the recently established Black Justice Committee and their numbers quickly grew. By the time of the public inquest on April 3rd, the BJC had grown to over 75 members, 10 times the group's original size just within two weeks of its establishment. This fact alone shows that the amount in which the black community was affected by Johnson's death. Members were eager to mobilize and speak out against police brutality. The Black Coalition was an activist group in Portland that was comprised of the leaders of local black activist groups. So members of the Black Coalition included Baruti R3 of the Black Justice Committee, Ellis Kasson of the NAACP, Vern Summers of the Metropolitan Human Relations Commission, James O. Brooks, director of the Portland Urban League, Reverend John Jackson, president of the Albina Ministerial Alliance, Willie Mae Hart, president of the National Council of Negro Women, Betty Lou Overton, president of the Albina Women's League, and James Loving, chairman of the Model Cities Planning Board. Many of the letters that you find addressing Neil Goldschmidt, Police Chief Baker, and other political leaders are signed the Black Coalition. I think it was a way to unify Portland Black activists. There's a saying that there is a power in numbers, and I think this is a perfect example of this. The Black Coalition wanted to show that all these black advocacy groups agreed that something must be done about police violence. Your research predominantly documents the active response from the black community in response to the shooting. But is there any evidence of Portland's white community also calling for police accountability? The responses from the white community vary. Some members of the community were outraged, disgusted, and pretty tired of Portland police behavior. Police violence against Portland citizens was not exactly limited to the black community. Just five years earlier, the Park Block riots occurred where Portland State University students and peaceful Vietnam War protesters were trapped and batoned by the Portland Police and Special Task Force. By Johnson's death just five years later, Portlanders still remembered the unjust violence witnessed during the Park Block riots. Also, throughout the 1960s, anti-war activists of all races were continually targeted and harassed by Portland Police surveillance groups. So again, those experiences were probably fresh on many Portlanders' minds. So yes, many white Portlanders did also voice their opinions on the killing. The protests, march on City Hall, and public inquests were not limited to just the black community. In fact, many white protesters attended to show their support of the black community, but also to protest police violence themselves. Other white Portlanders did not see this really as a race issue or even a police issue, but instead a poverty issue. Some citizens argued that instead of making this a quote-unquote black issue, the media and pol politicians should focus on what drove these boys to attempt a robbery in the first place. Other members of the community blamed the lack of youth support services. They believed that more programs needed to be implemented in order to better serve and support teenagers in the North Portland community. Lastly, many Portlanders did not think Officer Sanford was in the wrong at all. Johnson was technically attempting to commit a crime, and they believed Officer Sanford was just doing his job as a Portland police officer. Hmm. Even though the 
the disproportionality of the 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 uh, violence in comparison to the the offense. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, I think it was interesting that he was a 17 year old junior um, at Washington High School. Um, do you feel how much do you feel like the age Ricky's age played into the, the community's response uh, for? For justice, I think it hugely played into it. I think that the media took his age, you know, only 17, and kind of ran with it. Uh, you'll find that throughout the Oregonian, they refer to him as young Ricky, mm-hmm. which I think is just interesting. But at the same time, the people who were pro Kenneth Sanford and supporting the police bureau argued, you know, it was dark in that room, and Ricky Johnson was pretty big for his age, at about 6'2", and so there was really no way for Sanford to know that he was a 17-year-old. Hmm. So, what did the, uh, the what did the Black Justice Committee make demands upon the city for? Uh, March eighteenth, um, they they rallied and marched. Um, what did they demand from the city? So, yeah, on March eighteenth, nineteen seventy five, there was a march that began in front of the police station on Second and Oak and ended at City Hall. Over two hundred Portland citizens participated in the march, including Ricky Johnson's father, Oscar. After the march, BSU members Bill Harris, head of the Black Studies Department, met with Police Chief Baker and Neil Goldschmidt and submitted a list of demands that they felt represented the black community. This list includes, quote, one, Officer Sanford must be expelled from the police department and brought to trial for murder. Two, the hearings regarding Ricky Johnson's murder be open to the public to prevent a whitewash. Three, undercover agents must be withdrawn from the black community since recent events have proven they do not prevent crimes but instead commit crimes. Four, massive recruitment must be had by the Portland Police Department to recruit and hire black officers to serve in the black community. Five, the cases of Kenny Allen, Charles Menifee, and Joe Hopkins should be reopened. Six, the state must appoint a committee to investigate these rash killings by Portland Police, end quote. Hmm. One newspaper article reported that while members of the BSU met with the mayor and the police chief, protesters circled the building and chanted, Fire Chief Baker, and Baker is a child killer. The march proved successful, and the city agreed to host Multnomah County's first ever public inquest. So we actually have, um, again, thanks to OHS and their wonderful uh, collection, uh, we have a bit of a recording that is the Black Justice Committee responding to what happened in that Multnomah County public inquest. And we're going to play that now and then um, talk a little bit more about what a public inquest trial is. The Black Justice Committee is disappointed in the outcome of the inquest verdict, but it is consistent with our expectations in light of history. We plan a continuing effort to educate and organize the community around issues relating to the black community's health, safety, and security. We will follow through with efforts to change city and police policies related to public servant interaction with the black community. We hope to enlarge and increase the efficiency of community-based organizations to work with those issues related to the interests of Portland's black community. As was the case in the public inquest, the federal investigation failed to properly merit the substantial evidence supporting the police department's malice. The Black Justice Committee pledges its continued vigilance on behalf of the black community of Portland in matters relevant to the health, security, and education of the black community. 
Those two clips um, put together are chronologically separated. The first is in response to the end and the result of the inquest trial. And the second, uh, again, is a member of the Black Justice Committee responding to what happened later, which was the federal inquiry into uh, the killing of Ricky Johnson. So, Katie, tell us more about what the public inquest trial is and what happened during that trial. So similarly to a grand jury, a public inquest includes a judge, the prosecution, the defense, and a six-person jury. The prosecution questions the defendant, and jury votes on whether or not the defendant is found guilty. Ricky Johnson's public inquest trial was Multnomah County's first public inquest. A public inquest typically occurs when there is a controversial case, which usually involves a sudden death or an unexplained death. In 1973, Oregon legislature stripped the grand jury of its authority to make written reports on its finding, which means that the public couldn't know anything about how the grand jury reached its conclusion. They would just know the end result. So, essentially, a public inquest is really just a way to get information out to the general public. This would hopefully reduce hearsay and would allow community members to more openly voice their grievances. The public inquest was held on April 3, 1975, just about three weeks after Johnson's death. It differs from a grand jury inquest in the sense that the district attorney is not required to formally charge the defendant, even if they are found guilty by the jury. So, again, it really is just more of a way for the public to be able to find out more information on the case. People who remember the public inquest say it was a very tense and charged environment. Over 400 people attended the inquest, with only 22 Multnomah County deputies there to supervise the crowd. Due to this lack of crowd control, members of the Black Justice Committee wore red armbands and helped the deputies defuse any situations that arose. Out of the 400 attendees, only 96 people, including the press, were allowed into the actual courtroom. 200 people were jammed into the county commission chamber to watch the trial on closed-circuit court television, and more than 100 people were left to wander the halls aimlessly in hopes of finding a seat. The second suspect in the case, Johnson's friend Homer Zachary, decided to not testify. Instead, detectives played a tape-recorded testimony from Zachary detailing the event from his point of view. Cab driver Martin Zamzow also testified and talked about the night of March 12th, which was the first instance of robbery. The assistant district attorney, John Moore, questioned Officer Sanford, who testified on his innocence. It is said that the 200 people watching from the case on circuit court television would often break into shouting and booing when Officer Sanford spoke. The circuit court television also would not show the faces of the jury members. In the end, the jury voted 5-1 to one justifiable actions by Officer Sanford. The sole vote against Officer Sanford was from the only black jury member. The Black Student Union felt that the inquest did not answer all of their questions. They felt that there was no opportunities for anyone but Assistant Attorney General John Moore to ask questions, and the majority felt that the jury was largely whitewashed. Although unhappy with the results, the black community was not very surprised. Since Ricky Johnson's public inquest, there have been four other public inquests. So in later years, the Portland Police Association boldly disregarded community demands for police accountability in officer-involved violence. How did they react in 1975, only five years after they acquired a collective bargaining agreement with the city? This is a really important area and one that I have yet to really research thoroughly. 
The Oregon Historical Society houses the rap sheet on microfilm, which is the PPA's monthly newsletter, and I hope to go and dig through that soon. Um, the Portland Police Bureau and also the Portland Police Association have a very tight archival unit, so I have not been able to get in there just quite yet. The bit that I have found in the Portland City Archives mainly has to do with the public inquest. A letter from Stan Peters, the PPA's president of the time, criticizes District Attorney Harl Haas for breaking procedure and allowing a public inquest. Peters believed that if Haas and the community believed injustices were done, then the case should have just immediately gone to a grand jury. Mm-hmm. So I want to follow up on the, the public inquest trial because it seemed like it was an effort to try to bring transparency to something that the community knew would be covered up behind grand jury. Um, so while it did get open to the public, uh, the result was still fairly as the 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 voice we heard in the black justice committee said historically they were not surprised by the results of the inquest trials so what is your assessment of the inquest trials efficiency or um, was it simply just presenting the grand jury evidence in a public public atmosphere with the same sort of institutionalized or systematic prejudices within it I think it's kind of a little bit of both. I wouldn't necessarily deem the public inquest efficient because, like Charlotte Rutherford said in that clip, it was largely whitewashed and, you know, citizens weren't allowed to voice their opinions or ask questions to Officer Sanford or to Assistant District Attorney Harl Haas. However, I think that the public inquest was kind of a monumental moment for the black community, you know, even though it did not turn out the way that they wanted it to. It was still further legal action and kind of a step in the right direction of the city acknowledging these grievances and this violence within the black community. Mm-hmm. So the follow-up, as we kind of move into the last segment of our show, to the legacy, in recent issues, in, in cases of uh, Portland police um, use of uh, excessive force and even uh, deadly force that were deemed inappropriate. The the mayors even have or they've been fired. Um, specifically, uh, Frashour, uh, Officer Frashour, and his role within the the shooting death of Aaron Campbell. And just recently, in the end of December, arbitration reinstated him, and the city was forced to reinstate him to the police force, even though he was uh, removed um, from from his role. Was there any discussion of the mayor at that time, Neil Goldschmidt or Baker, um, even though there was no, the the public inquest had not said that there was any criminal fault, I guess, but was as far as like ethics and the department, was there any conversation within the department or specifically the mayor calling for the firing of Officer Sanford? Neil Goldschmidt, he's an interesting character uh, in terms of Portland political history. He was largely recognized as the mayor who liberalized Portland public politics as he was young, progressive, and liked by a lot of communities in Portland. While digging through the archival material on Ricky Johnson, you'll notice that Goldschmidt largely kind of plays the middleman. Citizens write to him nonstop, either voicing support or disdain for the public police. Sorry, Portland police. He makes it evident that he was deeply saddened by Johnson's tragic death and believed police reform inevitable, yet blatantly supports the well-being and safety of Portland police officers. I think that he was very compliant and supportive of meeting with the Black Justice Committee, as well as the NAACP and the Albina Ministerial Alliance. 
And he also very heavily supported the public inquest. But again, I feel like he kind of had to almost play this middle ground in order to pacify the Portland police and support them while also also simultaneously supporting some type of police reform. Yeah, in regards to Johnson's death, I really think that Goldschmidt wanted to appease as many citizens as possible and kind of diffuse the tense situation. You've made the argument that the community's response to the shooting death of Ricky Johnson was a catalyst of change within the city. What changes did you notice? Well, I think that it was a large change for how the white community perceived police violence within the Albina community. Um, It was largely publicized, as we talked about earlier, and also that this case gained substantial legal action, not only including the public inquest, but also the attempted federal investigation that was done immediately after the inquest. Um, Once the results of the inquest came back, the NAACP and Black Justice Committee spearheaded Oregon District Attorney I'm sorry, U.S. Attorney Sidney Lezak to do a preliminary investigation to see whether or not there were reoccurring injustices of civil rights within Portland police. Unfortunately, that was never an official federal investigation as their preliminary investigation came up with not enough evidence to support a further investigation. The years following Ricky Johnson's death... Portland sees a lot more people talking about police brutality and police misconduct, especially within the Albina community. Immediately following Johnson's death, there was a large conversation about gun reform within the Portland Police Department. The Metropolitan Human Resource Commission brought in specialists from Seattle to help with a gun reform plan, and they also studied other successful gun reform programs within other police departments, primarily looking at Kansas City. I believe Johnson's publicized death encouraged members of the community, you know, larger, not just specifically the black community, to push for stronger police reform and kind of fight back against this. Hmm. It also seems to me that the the Portland Police Association during this same time also consolidated its strength and also became stronger and more resilient or more uh, determined to fight any sort of calls for accountability. So bringing it up to today, the Black Lives matter movement has succeeded in forcing that national discussion on police tactics and police accountability, which um, we have been talking a lot about in regards to the 1970s. I mean, do you think the sharing, I guess, do you think the sharing, sharing of the history of Ricky Johnson's death by the police and the community's response can help these movements today? Yeah, absolutely. As historians, I think we all believe that we can learn incredibly profound things from studying the past. I think for people living in communities that are targeted by police violence, this subject is not a new issue. However, for individuals who are not subjected to police violence, it may come as a shock that these situations exist and have existed for generations. I think that by learning about Ricky Johnson's killing and other police killings before and after, People can better understand the enormity of the issue, which can then instigate more empathy and understanding towards movements like Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. Music in this episode from Michael Andrews and Ural Thomas. Again, we want to take a moment to thank our listeners who tuned in today. Your support is so greatly appreciated. If you want to help us out even more, then please 
please tell your friends about the show. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can hear our other episodes of Beyond Footnotes by visiting soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes, kpsu.org, or pdx.edu slash history. Signing off, I'm Ryan Wisnor. And I'm Joshua Justice. change in kpsu.org reggae revelation sunday at 8 to 10 p.m courtney john said who would play a boy who would play a boy yo this is ziggy marley and anytime i come to portland you know i always listen to dj shot change and reggae revelations love it dj shot change gonna live your life ah. reggae revelation sunday at 8 KPSU is brought to you in part by the PSU Bike Hub. A Bike Hub membership is only available to PSU students and faculty, where you get access to their tools and equipment, and they'll help you work on your bike. Of course, they also offer numerous free workshops and clinics. They sell bike accessories, they offer lock removal, secure bike parking permits, bike loans, 
and of course, professional service and repair. When I grow up, I want to be a new pair of blue jeans. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's first computer. I want to be a warm fleece on a cold I want to day. Be a football I want to be a bike that races around the country. I want to be a bench on a forest trail. When I grow up, I don't want to be a piece of garbage. And if you recycle me, I won't be. Give your garbage another life. Recycle. Learn how at IWantToBeRecycled.org. Brought to you by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Hey, Radio Land listeners, interested in being involved with KPSU? Whether it's doing album or concert reviews or even hosting your own show, you can be a volunteer here at KPSU. KPSU is dedicated to amplifying the voice and experience of students at Portland State University through free format radio programming. We've got a wide variety of entertainment, journalism, and specialty shows, all produced by PSU students and community member volunteers. So if you're interested in being involved in any way or even hosting your own show here at KPSU, Email our volunteer director at volunteer at kpsu.org. That's volunteer at kpsu.org.